everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange, we like to start by asking, what are you thinking? And this week, we're going to be thinking and chatting with the wonderful Kat from the Vet-led team. This continues a series of conversations we're having with Vet-led. And today we talk about Kat's amazing career as a veterinary surgeon, but more recently, her role in helping practices to do better and feel better uh, with a particular focus on psychological safety. In our clinical segment this week, we continue our journey through coagulation, focusing today on the investigation, particularly of immune-mediated thrombocytopenia. Right. Hi, Kat. So thanks so much for joining us today. Um, we are excited to be bringing this kind of series of, of podcasts with all of um, the very cool um, team members from VetLed. And and so it's it's really nice. And actually, what has been so nice is to um, hear various dis- different kind of perspectives on everything as well. And I think um, so we're looking forward to hear, hearing yours. So I don't know if you if you don't mind starting just by kind of introducing yourself and, and maybe telling us a little bit about your um, veterinary background, if that's OK. Hi, yeah, thanks, Scott, so much for having all of us on um, your amazing podcast. I'm really glad to be here. Um, My name's Kat, Kat Auden. Um, I'm a vet um, by training, and I worked in practice for a number of years before stepping out of clinical work and starting work for vet-led. And we sort of deliver um, human factors training, which I'm sure we'll talk about a bit more, um, to specifically to veterinary professionals, so um, using our sort of knowledge from other fields but also our expertise from experience in practice both as vets and nurses and so you are a edinburgh graduate is that right yes i am i know can we can we ask what year is that yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm not embarrassed at all <laughs> no I, um i graduated in 2010 you started your your career in small animal practice is that right just tell us a little bit kind of your 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 in practice experience yeah so I did um I did mostly small animal practice um one practice I worked at did some equine work as well um but largely that was um what my boss was doing rather than the rest of us but we'd we do a bit of that on the side as well for sort of covering and out of hours um but yeah largely small animal work which I very much enjoyed um and done a little bit of um, locum position since, but um, largely been out of clinical work now. Um, yes. And so tell us, which is always a kind of interesting perspective, you know, a perspective is, is really how people are making that transition, you know, from that kind of clinical practice role and then making a decision to do something that is obviously still veterinary related but is clearly different from and I think actually more and more people listening that maybe are looking for a bit of that kind of diversification are just really interested to understand how people people get to where where they get to in in these sorts of different ways yeah totally I mean I think I um I would have not really known what was out there I think you hear through vet school oh do you know what your vet degree it opens so many doors and I was there thinking that's amazing but what are the doors I don't really know what they are and I I can't what they are um, and so um, I had um, a couple of years out where I had my children um, and that provided some good thinking time um, <laughs> and sort of reassessing what I wanted to do with my life um, and actually I it, like most um, sort of major career changes and that sort of thing and um, I, I met up with my colleague Rue um, in the pub and we had a, a drink and a chat and um, and I think I've been thinking about, you know, what's out there. I really like people. I really like the people side of practice, but I don't want to step totally away from the veterinary 
of things. Um, you know, is it going to be like a sort of coaching thing or some sort of well-being initiative? But I wasn't really finding exactly what it was. And I think getting chatting with Rue and hearing a bit more about what Vetled do and how it is very much to do with actual clinical performance, but our clinical skills and knowledge, it just seemed to kind of tick both boxes um, and a great bunch of people to work with as well. So that's always about yeah. Yeah, no, that definitely comes through for sure. So we're chatting a little bit about the different sort of things that that VetLed do and some of the different sort of elements of the work that you do. And obviously the the, the words that come, come up again and again are human factors. And we've talked a little bit about you know what what those human factors are and and also the fact that actually human it's quite you know it, it encompasses a lot of stuff because there's there's a lot of human factors right so the human factors in, in veterinary practice one of the things that i think um you know that that is particularly important is you know potentially are we introducing all of this stuff too late are we getting to a stage in our veterinary careers where actually there's some sort of like implosion or explosion where things are just all going a bit wrong and we're feeling completely overwhelmed by everything and, and actually the processes and procedures and practice are just not serving us in the best way and then we're kind of reacting to everything is there not and I think we've, we've kind of mentioned this stuff before is this not the kind of thing that we need to be talking about from day one why are we just I feel that we're very reactive to, to a lot of these problems. Are we not better to be a bit more proactive about it? Yes, I think you're you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, it's not not to say that it's too late. Like you can, okay. can absolutely go into practice with people who have been qualified for you know many years, and the stuff that we talk about is eminently trainable. It's stuff that we can learn and we can improve at, just like we can learn and improve to operate some uh, in some particular um way better over time so we can we can train these skills um but yes again you you are completely right i think we should be doing this from day one and then, and before day one really is you know it should be something that um and increasingly we're seeing it at, at university level is is coming in and um, meaning that we're graduating you know even more capable confident um, veterinary graduates mm-hmm and I think, I mean, one of the things that I think a lot of people feel about, uh, you know, you talked about kind of different um, well-being initiatives, but different initiatives to improve many different elements of practice life that are not necessarily to do with the clinical stuff. So we're talking about the other factors, the human factors. I think what sometimes I think people struggle with is actually knowing what that looks like on a really practical term. And I don't, I, you know, I don't, we don't need to go into, you don't need to give us away all your deepest, darkest secrets, but I think what, put that into real terms for us. What does it actually, so you're, you're going into practices and you're trying to improve the practice, but what are we actually doing to, to achieve that? I think it is a confusing term sometimes because people can think, oh no, there's, and this is wrong. There's the human factors, the um, sort of animal factors that lead to something going wrong perhaps. Um, but human factors is more than that. You know, it's a, I think it's really important for us as scientists and so people who like an evidence base, right, um, to know that it is a scientific knowledge about the human body, about our minds, about our behaviours and how those work and how those can um, give us great strengths. But they can also limit us in our performance as vets, but also as any other um, career. But it, I mean, it's very important that we do kind of think about how this impacts us as veterinary surgeons, because ultimately, 
you know, <laughs> the outcome of our performances, patient safety, and um, you know, our our clinical um, clinical outcomes. And so we need to we need to tend to it as well. Um, in terms of what it looks like in practice, yes, absolutely, well-being is a really important part of that. I think that term sometimes is a little bit overused now, and there's started to become a bit of a sort of pushback against it because it's become a tick box exercise. Um, it is it is really important that we have staff who are well, who like their jobs, who are able to do their jobs well. Um, and that's physical health, mental well-being, the whole the whole shebang. It's really it's really important. Um, but that's not the whole picture. So there's well there's um, our sort of skills and knowledge about the non-technical side of what we do. Um, so not our clinical skills and knowledge, which are obviously hugely important to do our jobs well, but also um, things like leadership, like communication, and um, like our non-technical skills, like our situational awareness. Um, but also um, things like systems and processes, how those are set to support us in practice and, and, and how those things can help us to perform at our best. So just to pick yeah, just to pick up on something you said there, I think that's really interesting. And um, uh, you talked about kind of about the term well-being, and the fact that there was that kind of pushback against it a little bit, and then this idea of it being a tick box exercise. And I think that's really genuinely something that comes up quite a lot um, through our discussions, because I think that's that that genuinely is a lot of um, what we're seeing across the sector um, and not blaming any one organization or individual but I, d I definitely do I've experienced that where it people say that they're you know doing x y and z but it really is it feels not like a genuine uh sort of um a genuine attempt to, to make some sort of real changes the other thing that you you mentioned there which I really think is coming through really strongly and is really important is 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 also looking at that process the the and and not just about the individual as as important as the individual is but looking at how the whole practice and 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 all of our procedures and processes can potentially be bettered to ensure that we are doing better um and 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 I think that 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 must be a really important part then of what you're doing yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you can't just take a small part of this and expect it to all kind of hugely change your workplace culture. We have to look at the bigger picture. Um, I mean, your, certainly your comments there on, on well-being. Yes, I think the, the question to be asked is not necessarily, oh, here's what we're doing for well-being, um, you know, taking everybody out for a Christmas meal or having pizza on a Friday. But what do our staff need um, well? And can we meet those needs? And asking asking the staff, you know, it's, it's all very well having, uh, you know, the well-being award, but is that what the staff need and what would the staff say about um, the levels of well-being in that particular um, practice or group? And um, it often comes from a really good place. Like that's it's, these things are, are not great, um, but we need to be doing it for the right reasons and to actually meet the needs that's there. The systems and processes. Yeah, absolutely. We need to be um, using sort of tools that help us um, to recognize our human limitations so using sort of structured handover tools and and knowing how to use those to their best effect um, things like checklists i know have um, been increasingly talked about and perhaps there's a bit of a negative feeling towards them but they have a huge benefit and um, correctly and trained to be used correctly and um, practical tangible tools like that and um, 
are important. And I think in our in our industry, we're we're often under such huge time pressure, aren't we? Um, and so it can feel like, oh, I just don't have time to do this or that. But it's those times where actually we need to be um, using our structured tools in order to um, limit the chance of um, having an adverse. Yeah. I think that's right. I think, I mean, I think the checklist thing is interesting because I, I, I you know, I went to a, a sort of seminar about checklists quite some time ago now, actually. And I remember coming away from that with a lot of the human information that I was given um, as far as how checklists are, checklists are used in human medicine. I, I came away from that feeling like if I was having an operation, I definitely would want there to be checklists. Do you know what I mean? Like I don't... <laughs> Like I don't, you know, as far as kind of the stats about checklists versus not, and this is as a human being, I was like, no, checklist all of the things, check them all. Because actually there, there's some really good data to suggest, not to suggest, to to, to, to say that actually these work massively well. Um, and, I, and I, to be honest with you, I've been involved a little bit kind of the development of some checklists within practice. And actually not only are they, lifesavers in many ways but actually a lot of our younger vets um actually find them really helpful just to get the job done because they're kind of like a, a reminder of kind of the so i i don't i'm not a fan of kind of really prescriptive medicine as in if the dog is vomiting do this this and this but actually there's a place for some guidance you know yeah. um, and i think there's a, there's a real humility in accepting that even though we're like on the whole quite brainy professionals we do have a limit to the number of things that we can remember you know and that's not just it's not it's just because we're human it's not because we're sort of a less good vet or vet nurse and um, we, we have a kind of cognitive limitation and so it's it's fine to say that and fine to say do you know what i'm going to use the checklist because i can only remember approximately seven things at once mm -hmm. no absolutely so as far as honestly i mean i i suppose we could go on forever as far as um all of the different things that can be done but as far as that kind of um as far as your your job and, and the kind of support that you offer can you give us an example of um changes um from it from the from the human being side changes um that you see make a massive difference within veterinary uh, practices hmm. i think um one of the biggest challenges we have is the sort of underlying culture and uh, work that we have in practice um, and that's hugely multifactorial how that sort of comes about and you know there's a variety of different um, cultures that you see in different practices but I think if we can sort of fundamentally support practices to be changing the way we talk about adverse events or the things that um, we want to put in place to support our teams to perform at their absolute best and then we will see huge change in um, sort of our, our joy at work our, uh, our desire to stay in roles um, our ability to um, recruit people to our own teams. Uh, and those are all um, incredibly valuable things, I think, for our profession more widely. I think I look, I look back sort of to clinical situations that I've been in and I think, do you know what? I, I, that was incredibly stressful at the time. Um, but if I look back at it through my human factors lens or my human factors goggles that I can put on now, I understand why that happens. Yeah, and it's interesting, actually, isn't it? Like you say, kind of reflecting on things in a slightly, uh, you know, reflecting on 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 things in a, a slightly different way. I just wonder, going back to that point about practice culture, I do. I, I must admit that, as you said that, and sort of, you know, potentially, let's say, 
you go into practice and the, the the main objective of what you're trying to do is is in some way change the culture within a practice and I think a lot of people listening will relate to the fact that potentially that maybe does need to happen in in many practices I just think that makes me feel like is that even a th- is that even possible like how can like thinking about so many practices that I've worked in potentially practices that have been practices the way they've been practices for a very long time we've done it a certain way for a very long time and and a lot of that culture maybe comes from certain individuals Uh, maybe sometimes not very nice individuals like what Uh, you know but that's true so what but how how do you even begin to like pick that apart I think you have to start small and we can't change an entire workplace culture overnight no one can do that I think often things are very deeply embedded like you say and I think we have to decide what we want the values and behaviors of um, a particular uh, particular practice or group to be and that's very important Um, and having individuals in that team signed up to those values and behaviors but yeah of course (laughs) massively challenging Um, and we know the deep-rooted problems that are in veterinary practice um, and and do make it sometimes a really tough place to work Um, but I think the desire is increasingly there and I really see that with a new generation of graduates who are coming out that are wanting a positive place to work and they speak a language that I think probably you and I didn't speak when we came out of vet school about kind of um well-being and about um um wanting to perform well but um needing to think about how we do that and I think you know I certainly came out of vet school thinking that the more I knew and the more operations I'd done the better a vet I would be and that was it Um, and actually it's quite a hard lesson when you come out and realize that you know that's often not enough and I think they're coming out much better equipped and through the training that we're seeing particularly in um, some of the newer vet schools as well. Yeah you you mentioned a little bit about kind of you know that kind of how we're going to sort of retain people in practice and and try and improve um, people's ability to stay in this profession and stay happy in this profession and people at the moment are talking about this kind of perfect storm of Brexit uh coronavirus there's another thing what's the other thing brexit coronavirus maybe there's not so i think uh, the the, you know um the recruitment sort of issue overall whatever but there's they talk about this perfect storm of stuff that is kind of um oh no i know the other thing however many millions new pets so the new pets the lockdown pets coronavirus and brexit so but actually what you kind of i think sort of alluded to there was and I would certainly uh, suggest that there's more than just those three things. We cannot blame the current sort of issues within the profession just in those three things. And I think there are some really ingrained problems that are that have been around in the profession for a long time. Can you maybe, I don't know if there's kind of just that, that comes to mind, some of those sort of real ingrained cultures that are particularly damaging, do you think, within the profession? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. It was an issue before this this perfect storm you mentioned. And, um, you know, we see a fall away of, at about sort of five to seven years, I think, isn't it, of veterans um, wanting to step out of practice. You know, these are talented people. So there is there is a lot. Um, we have to make veterinary practice somewhere that people want to stay and want to flourish, not just sort of remain for the rest of their careers. Um, I think I think there is an issue when we compare it and um, to other sort of professions that there isn't a sort of such an obvious career progression. Um, 
that can be frustrating for you know very able um, professionals and that's not necessarily happening I think that's improving uh, it's more of a structure coming out in some of the um, the graduate programs that we see and the, the support that's available now which is fantastic um, so I think that can be frustrating. I think um, sometimes there's, you know, there's, there's always the argument about sort of financial reward um, for professionals, and, and which which can be an issue um, and lead and lead to frustrations and wanting to leave the profession. Um, but as you say, it's like a massively multifactorial thing, and it's just been compounded, hasn't it, by the last eighteen months, which have been incredibly hard work. Um, mm -hmm. Everyone. And have you seen in, in your work, have you seen anything particularly sort of highlighted with this last year? Is there anything that you think has become uh, more of a problem or more of a challenge for us because of, of the last 12 months? The time pressures have increased. We've always had a busy profession. Um, um, days have always been hectic. Um, but I think that has um, been massively increased um, over the last 18 months because We've now got this backlog of patients that haven't been seen over the last 18 months. Um, so, yes, that's that's hard. And, and I think that's the point at which we almost need to look after our staff even more. And um, we need to sort of carve out that time for them to take a break, take a rest, even if it's 20 minutes and um, just in the middle, middle of the day to reset. Because if we have our sort of scientific brains on, we know that um, like being heavily fatigued, being heavily stressed is not going to optimize our brain's ability to work at its best. Um, and therefore, we won't do as good a job um, as we as we would if we'd had um, sort of a, a short break. So, you know, it's hard. It's really hard to carve those times out. But I mean, I saw a job advert recently for um, that somebody was advertising for a new vet, and they were advertising the fact that they they had a one hour carved out lunch break. And you think that's that's brilliant, but it sh it should be more normal than that. It shouldn't be the the one recruitment thing. But I mean, good on that practice for saying, you know, we are going to value our staff and we recognize that they do a better job at the end of the day. And um, if they've had, if they've had a little bit of time to just reset. Yeah. But even that small thing, I, I think that I, I never in a million years would I have imagined that sort of thing to be in a job advert, but the fact that there's glimmers of hope with that sort of thing, I do think that that is, um, I do think that that is encouraging in some way. Something that we've really tried to plug with our HALT campaign and um, a sort of free campaign that we we did because we really felt like it was the right thing to do. Um, and we produced a whole heap of sort of downloadable resources um, that we can um, that we provide on our website for people to use to encourage um, the practice team to take that break and take to HALT in the middle of the day. But I, and I think that again, you know, coming back to this, it doesn't. This doesn't have to be complicated. You know, I think um, there's complexities about the kind of work that you're doing. But ultimately, does halt stand for something, or does it actually just mean stop? Well, it does mean stop. That's the idea, <laughs> but no, it's an M. Um, so we've got um, it. It flags the things that we should be checking in us uh, with ourselves about. Um, take a short okay. break. So, hung H for hungry, thirsty. Um, for angry or anxious, L for late or lonely, and E for tired. And these are things that we can, not all of them all at once, but we can often mitigate one or two of these factors um, when we stop and think about it. Um, but we can find ourselves plowing through the whole day and the day with all those factors and, and um, find ourselves repeat if we're repeatedly doing that in a bit of a sticky situation. Yeah, it's funny, actually, do you know, we, we I was talking to someone the other day, you know, we we were talking um we often, with VTX, we use the hashtag, what are you thinking? And it's really, you know, initially that was very much about the fact that we're providing, you know, learning. So what are you, you know, what we're asking, what are you thinking? And it was initially 
very much about that kind of clinical element of what we do that totally changed actually and actually what what are you thinking now actually means a lot more than that you know where and I think for me that idea of actually taking the time just to speak to someone about how their day is going what are you thinking you know is is um is actually just as valuable is more valuable than a lot of the tick boxing exercises do you know what I mean like actually you know actually ask me and then we we joked I can't remember how this came up but we had a we someone else then so I I must have put hashtag what are you drinking instead now that was initially to do with alcohol so that's not a good message but actually I you know I said we should you know we should get a coffee cup and put hashtag what you uh, thinking hashtag what you're drinking and even if, if it encourages someone just to sit down and then make someone a cup of tea you know it's a silly thing but actually encouraging people just to do that is so powerful and actually and the fact that it also means stop. I mean, I, I knew it was going to be a clever acronym. I'm sorry that I simplified that. But that's an, an amazing, you know, that so so yes, it's simple in itself, but it's actually so powerful, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think it is, you're right. You don't want to overcomplicate things. It is the little things, but they're little things that make a big difference. Um, and if the difference is made to the people that we work with, but also the patients that we're working with as well, um, then that's, that's really important you know if if the outcome is better patient safety um and the outcome is more well staff who um love their work then those are great things and if we can do that and um, by making simple small changes then then brilliant i, I like your sort of um, what are you thinking i think it's it's kind of it helps to like dig into stuff it's like asking that question like how are you actually how are you um wanting to hear an answer rather than it just being a sort of passing question yeah and I exactly and it's it's yes exactly I think that and we we actually say you know we say at the start of every podcast you know um here at VTX we we would like to say you we'd like to ask what are you thinking but, but like I said genuinely that has grown a sort of much more significant meaning and I think certainly for me um that is f- personally where the value in in the workplace is as far as you know really checking in on people but really checking in on people no but really you know and I think that genuinely is is the most meaningful meaningful thing for me uh, as far as how how you can help people so I I really do think that that is a great um a a great campaign and we'll put certainly those resources we can link to uh, in the show notes so people should should check that out I wanted, I don't want, it's so difficult, isn't it? Because all of these topics are great topics. I just wanted to touch on one other thing that I think you're, you have a particular interest in, which is um, psychological safety uh, within the workplace. Now, I must admit that I'm not really sure what that is. So why don't you tell me what that is? Yeah, so um, it's it's a, it's a new term, I guess, to a lot of people. So we want, we, if you think about a sort of an environment where, um maybe you're you don't feel like you can raise an issue because something's perhaps something's gone wrong um during an op but you're the junior in the room and you don't feel that you can speak up and say I think there's something going wrong here we need to do something about it an environment where there's high levels of psychological safety anybody in the room can raise an issue and feel safe to do so without fear of retribution Um, and of course for the sake of um our, our patients we want that to be the case um, we want anyone to feel that they could raise their hand and be wrong. They could be wrong about it, but that's still okay. So having that sort of level, high level of psychological safety in practice, I think, is something that we could definitely work on as a profession and be 
um, something that could make quite significant change um, to to our, our performance in practice. I love that. So actually just feeling safe to just just say just feeling safe to say basically right and and being able to to flag things but I think again that's again there's there is simplicity in that as far as it when you say it like that you're like of course people should feel that way of course people should feel that way um really interesting so I um just wanted to uh if it was okay finish up by asking you a few questions that we like to ask our guests um uh so my first question is um what do you want to be when you grow up yeah I, I know you sent these over um as a sort of little uh, heads up that you might ask them so I've been having a little think and I was just wondering about that I, I feel I don't know I'm only in my mid-30s but I feel like I've kind of <laughs> grown up kind of okay so far but um I, I sort of thought about it it's like what do, what do I want people to say you know when I get towards the end of my life, uh, what do I want them to say about me? And I thought, well, I think I want them to say she was kind um, and encouraged other people to achieve what they could achieve. Um, and was someone who kind of was other-centered and looked to the needs of others. Um, so I think I'd like to, I'd like to grow up to become that. I think it's a work in progress. Um, but yeah, those, those are the, the character traits I'd like, I'd like to grow up into. I, that that theme does come a lot up up a lot with that question as far as kind of work in progress and I, I really like the fact that we're actually we'll we we will continue to do uh and work on ourselves hopefully for the rest of our lives it's not a a process that stops so no that's a very good answer um we obviously your veterinary degree has opened those doors you spoke about at the beginning actually what doors these doors here these doors are the doors that you're opening um do you think if you had your time again you would um still make that application to go to vet school yeah I think I would um I think I couldn't have seen quite where it would lead me um but I'm glad that I did. I feel like I've met amazing people through um, my career so far and hope that I still will continue. Um, I think it's um, it's provided me with um, great opportunities. It's provided me with um, great um, sort of brain stimulation, like doing lots of sort of learning over time and continuing to learn. Um, so yeah, I think I would. Um, I wondered whether I would encourage my children into veterinary as a career. Sure whether I would or not. Um, I think I've been very much formed by the, the life choices made and things happen for a reason. Um, so I'm not sure I'd change anything, but I'm, I'm not convinced I would necessarily encourage my children to the same career choice. And I, I think that's it. So I, I must admit that I would be in complete agreement with that. Uh, like I, and I'm quite, you know, comfortable saying that, like I definitely would, as, as people have said, this has all led us to this moment right now. So I'm not saying that your veterinary degree was worth it because you're now speaking to me. But <laughs> <laughs> here, this this is the pinnacle. I'm afraid to say <laughs> from this interview. No, um, but it's led us to this moment, hasn't it? You know, and 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 that's and 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 that's fine by me. You know, but if I'm being very honest, I would also not be actively encouraging my children to go to vet school you know so that's that's an, a conversation it's for interesting one. I, mean, I mean I guess you don't want to sort of do down that and um, that choice because it's a great choice that we've made we've had huge opportunities from it 
Um, I think, you know, I, I look, my, my kids often say, oh, I want to be a vet, because I think that's what they see. Uh, I would hope is that we could present them with this whole kind of realm of different um, career opportunities. It's not just what they see in front of them. And choice choices. And I love that, you know, again, it's, yeah, I would never, I would want them to have choices. And as, um, uh, so Mandisa Green, who was obviously our recent RCBS president, she said when she was talking about, you know, her um, position as the first black woman as an RCBS president, she said, if you if you can't see it, you can't be it. And I think that kind of that kind of applies to that, just presenting the options uh, and, 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 um, and I think they make a choice um yeah but making sure they see other options <laughs> so, <laughs> in the night but in the best way it's just about I, I don't yeah I feel like I've been really negative there but absolutely you know and I, mean? I think like being a, um, being yeah. aware of your own skill sets and really kind of choosing career choices based on those which may well be um you know veterinary and medicine or veterinary nursing which is fantastic and um, but also looking at what our other um options are out there and how our skill sets might match up to those yeah no <laughs> yeah no I no I totally agree um I wonder you've obviously have uh, you know have, uh, worked with some amazing people just now and, and have met lots of amazing people I'm sure across your uh, career and your life um I wondered if you could share with us who inspires you yeah um I think I've had so various mentors through kind of um my, my sort of clinical veterinary work who I've been inspired by um I think also, my um, my vet led colleagues um, very much inspire me um, as as individuals and um, you know family members as well. And I was trying to think about what the thread was that linked these individuals. And I think it's people who do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, and they see see an opportunity and think you know that's the right thing to do. It might not be the most sort of successful thing to do or the most money spending thing to do, but it's the right thing, and so we're going to do it. Um, and that's, I think, what what links, you know, the, the particular veterinary surgeons and particular colleagues um, and family members um, who have inspired me for my life. It's, it's funny, actually. So that was it kind of came up um, in my conversation with Dan about about this sort of thing where, you know, sometimes being a smaller organization which which certainly from my you know we are as a as a as a cbd company or whatever and um and being kind of like um slightly kind of i don't know sometimes a bit um scared and not scared but kind of overwhelmed by some of the bigger organizations but like i said i, I think it's um we make decisions about what we are doing based on what i what we think is the right thing to do i think that's right and and it doesn't you know it's not about the decisions that's going to make you a multimillionaire. i think that's that's furthest that's furthest from my mind you know and i think so i love that i think that i really relate to that i think that's um and what a nice common thread through the people that inspire you uh, that's that's great um so if you were to give um a piece of advice to those listening if if you can choose one what piece of advice would you would you give um i think to um people in the veterinary career in veterinary careers or as students like just go for it think outside of the box ask questions and speak to people um you see something that you love go for it um but more generally i think to people sort of my advice would just be kind of in life ask ask the big questions seek out truth value honesty and integrity and those are the things that i think um, I really value and I would sort of pass on as my advice. Great. 
Well, listen, thanks so much today uh, for chatting. So many amazing things there and, and, and uh, you will be an inspiration to many people um, through your kind of uh, uh, diversification and, and the things you're doing now. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Okay, everyone. So in our clinical segment today, we're going to be continuing a discussion about uh, coagulation. And the last time we just, we sort of introduced coagulation as a, as a topic. And this time we're going to talk a bit more specifically about thrombocytopenia. So basically low uh, platelet numbers uh, and what or how that will affect our patients. But again, I think it's really, really important that we... Um, put that low platelet number in context, particularly um, when we are using benchtop analyzers to generate a number for platelets. Because as we mentioned, there are a number of reasons that the machine can misrepresent uh, the, the, the number of platelets. In patients that present because of a bleeding disorder, and as we said, problems with platelet number, or thrombocytopenia, then some of the common reasons for patients to present will be things like petechiation and ecchymosis, uh, bleeding from the gums, bleeding from the nose. So usually it's that kind of surface bleeding. But uh, as we also mentioned, you can also get um, uh, more uh, global problems with bleeding. Uh, certainly uh, thrombocytopenic patients can bleed internally. They can bleed into their GI tract, into their lungs and brains. So there, there can be lots of of, of very serious uh, consequences and it's not just about necessarily that bleeding that you can see um, on the surface. Looking at it in a sort of straightforward way to begin with, thrombocytopenia, low platelet number, is going to be due to uh, a number of key reasons. So as with all of our blood cells, platelets are produced um, in the bone marrow and if there is a problem in the bone marrow, uh, we can see thrombocytopenia because of a decrease in platelet production. We can see a decrease in platelet number because they are being destroyed in the circulation usually, or uh, and certainly that would be what we see with immune-mediated uh, thrombocytopenia. We can lose platelets, and, and actually with massive uh, amounts of hemorrhage, and blood loss through trauma, you're you're losing platelets and coagulation factors through that sort of process. So if you've had a very very significant uh, hemorrhage, then you may you may get a, re a reduction in platelet number, and also sequ sequestration. So are the platelets hanging out somewhere? And, and uh, the the most common place for them to kind of hang out and be uh, se sequestered are going to be the spleen, uh, most typically. Again, not to kind of sort of labour the point, but, you know, platelet number is a really, really important thing to assess in our bleeding patients. But when we're talking about thrombocytopenia, uh, particularly when we're talking about thrombocytopenia being the cause of the, spont of the spontaneous bleeding, the platelet count really does have to be below 50 times 10 to the 9 Um uh, in order for, for the, the platelets to be the, the reason for that bleeding. So your analyzer may tell you that the platelet count is low. As I said, really important we verify that. But it's 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 also important to, to, to put that number in context. So it might be a bit lower than the reference range, but is the platelet count low enough 
to be the cause for the bleeding? And that's a really important uh, question for us to uh, answer. And and so, for instance, you know, we'll get a lot of looking at kind of um, what one of the common analyzers, for instance, um, the reference range for platelets uh, will be between 155 and 600 times 10 to the 9. That's the reference range for platelets. So let's say we have a platelet count of 99 times 10 to the 9. That's lower than the reference range, but it's not low enough to be causing spontaneous bleeding. And uh, if that patient is suffering from spontaneous bleeding, then I'd be thinking to myself, well, is there another reason for that? You know, so we have to put that number we have to put that number in context. So in the kind of scope of thrombocytopenic patients that we are seeing, an interesting study from Vet Record actually, uh, 2009, looked at over 800 dogs with thrombocytopenia generally. And as far as the causes for thrombocytopenia, there were various, they split them into five categories actually in this study. So 5.6% of that population had immune-mediated thrombocytopenia. Thrombocytopenia caused by disseminated intravascular coagulation or DIC was 6%. Thrombocytopenia caused by miscellaneous, <laughs> which is always a good category, was about 25%. Uh, neoplasia associated thrombocytopenia was 28%, interestingly. And inflammatory and infectious thrombocytopenia was 34%. Uh, what I think is most interesting about this particular study, so all of that vast array of disease, neoplasia, inflammation, etc., etc., all of them had thrombocytopenia. But the ones that had the most significant decreases in platelets were the ones that had immune-mediated thrombocytopenia and thrombocytopenia caused by DIC. So generally, although immune-mediated thrombocytopenia was not the most common in this population of thrombocytopenic dogs, the patients that you're going to be seeing most commonly presenting at your clinic, because actually they've got spontaneous bleeding, ecchymosis, uh, petechiation, they're more likely to be the immune-mediated thrombocytopenics because they're the ones that are going to have platelet counts most commonly below that 50 times 10 to the 9 and, and, and in fact even lower and therefore will be presenting uh, with uh, spontaneous hemorrhage. Immune-mediated thrombocytopenia is uh, an immune-mediated process, a process where platelets are being inappropriately destroyed by the immune system. And like any immune-mediated disease, and this goes for immune-mediated hemolytic anemia, immune-mediated polyarthropathy, the immune, inappropriate immune uh, reaction can either be primary or secondary. So primary, where actually we don't find uh, an underlying cause, or secondary, where there is some sort of antigenic stimulus and the immune-mediated process is secondary. And the most common things would be, as actually with all immune-mediated diseases, the kind of things we're looking for as far as causes are drugs, inf inf inflammatory or infectious disease, uh, neoplasia, 
particular drugs, for instance, that have been linked to immune-mediated thrombocytopenia are uh, sulfonamides and cephalosporins. So we're looking for kind of underlying disease potentially triggering this secondary immune uh, reaction, which is causing platelet destruction. The evaluation of these patients, usually they will come in because they have been seen to bleed uh, or there are petechiation on their gums, there's been bleeding from the mouth, bleeding from the nose. Normally they're, they're, something has alerted the owner. And obviously the, the first thing that we need to do, and this goes really for any coagulopathic patient, assessing platelet number, verifying that under the blood smear and remembering that thrombocytopenia is rarely going to be the sole cause of bleeding over 50 times 10 to the 9. Um, we we would go on and do a full hematology to see if other uh, cells are affected or it's just platelets. As far as just a couple of things about the examination of these patients, I would have a really good look in their eyes. I've seen a couple of immune-mediated thrombocytopenic patients who have presented solely because of because of acute onset blindness. Now, this is really interesting when you think about it, but the only thing the owners have noticed is that uh, acute onset blindness. Now, the reason that that has been the presenting uh, problem is because actually these dogs have got immune-mediated thrombocytopenia, but they have bled uh, into their eye uh, and, and have gone blind. Um, and so just a you know, good... Uh, ocular examination is always an important part, um, an Im important part of, of this. And then actually, the question then always really comes, if you've confirmed that the platelet number is indeed very low, the next question is, you know, what are we going to do to kind of look into this problem? Uh, and particularly if we suspect immune-mediated thrombocytopenia, we're going to be looking potentially for underlying causes. That can be more challenging um, when the patients don't have any platelets because you don't really want to be bouncing them around too much. But certainly things like chest radiography and abdominal ultrasound or CT chest and abdomen to look for underlying disease. But if you do see, for instance, abnormalities in the spleen and the liver, you're not really going to be wanting to stick needles in that sort of thing when they're so thrombocytopenic. Is there a suspicion that there could be a problem uh, in the bone marrow, for instance? Maybe more than one cell line is affected and, and it's not just a thrombocytopenia. But again, are you are you going to, to be wanting to do sort of bone marrow samples in these patients? To be honest with you, sticking needles in spleens, I probably would not do. Bone marrow actually doesn't tend to be a, a disaster as far as controlling bleeding. So that may be something to, to, uh, to consider. Uh, infectious disease testing will, will depend very much on which part of the world you're in, where where I'm based clinically, uh, potentially not that interesting as far as, um, you know, diseases that we have to sort of think about. Um, but certainly serological testing for some tick-borne disease uh, may indeed be uh, may indeed be appropriate. Treatment of these uh, guys is going to involve removing if there is an underlying offending cause, then taking it away. So for instance, if there is a tumour and the immune-mediated thrombocytopenia is secondary to that, then getting rid of the tumour probably is, is the right thing to do. It's important to remember, even in secondary immune-mediated thrombocytopenia, 
the, the patients still meet, may need concurrent immunosuppressive therapy um, because it's still an inappropriate immune reaction. So they, they may still, even if it's not a purely primary problem, they may still require um, immunosuppressive therapy. Immunosuppressive therapy in these patients is usually always going to be glucocorticoids, whether that's initially dexamethasone and then prednisolone. Other interesting uh, treatment options are potentially vincristine. So vincristine, usually given as a one-off dose, will release platelets from the bone marrow and can be given in usually in that initial emergency setting. And the other uh, option for uh, concurrent treatment as well as the steroids, and this is obviously on top of the steroids, is human intravenous immunoglobulin. Now both human intravenous immunoglobulin and vincristine were both shown to have a, a positive effect in combination with steroids in immune-mediated thrombocytopenic patients. The biggest issue with the human intravenous immunoglobulin is availability and cost. So really vincristine is probably a more practical um, tool um, in the emergency setting. If you do have to consider a second immunosuppressive agent, um, mo most of these patients do respond relatively promptly with steroids. But if that's not happening, then it's the same sort of uh, spectrum of uh, secondary immunosuppressive agents that you have available, mycophenolate, um, azathioprine, cyclosporin, the little bit of evidence maybe to support the use of mycophenolate, uh, and that's maybe the one that I would go for as a second agent in many of these um, in many of these uh, cases. So, um, generally, uh, like I said, they, they they respond usually relatively well to the steroids. Many of you might be listening uh, and thinking, well, why don't we just give them platelets? Why don't we just give them platelets? And the answer to that is that would be lovely, but platelets are a real problem. Um, so really important to remember that, that, that really platelets don't survive in any of our transfusion products. There are no platelets in canine patriot blood cells or, or any of the plasma products. Um, and even in fresh whole blood, taking fresh whole blood out of one patient, there, there actually will be very, very small numbers of platelets that survive that, that process. So there's not really a truly effective way of us giving uh, platelets back to our patients. The only platelet products that are available, but not widely, are first of all, we you can get these frozen platelet concentrates that are made by some pet blood banks. Not available from the, the UK pet blood bank, available for, from some US pet blood banks and from uh, certain Spanish and Portuguese uh, pet blood banks. But again, so that comes down to an availability thing. Um, the other product which is available in the US um, and hopefully will at some stage be available in the UK is canine leophilized platelets. And there's some evidence to show that they are potentially safe and effective in uh, dogs. There's a lot of work going on at the moment with with leophilized platelets. I was very lucky to be involved in a study actually recently using them. And the beauty of the, the leophilized platelets is literally we're talking about a product that can sit on the shelf at room temperature, be reconstituted with sterile water and is ready to go as a platelet product. And that would just be incredible for us to have that uh, option, you know, to, to be able to literally lift platelets off 
off the shelf. So, one to watch. Generally, actually, touch wood, many of these patients do respond well to steroids. And if they do, then that's great. And actually, they can be then managed longer term as with any immune-mediated disease. And, and over time, the steroid dose can hopefully be, can be weaned. Just to round up our, our sort of platelet uh, chat, as I said, the, the, the main issues you're going to see from a coagulation point of view in practice are usually going to be to, to do with platelet number. There are, you know, if, if platelet number is not the problem, then the other main thing is platelet function. So you could have the right number of platelets, but those platelets are not functioning properly. And probably the, the disease that we talk about most commonly as, as far as platelet function is von Willebrand's disease. So von Willebrand's disease is actually the most common hereditary bleeding disorder, hereditary bleeding disorder in dogs, although that does not mean that it, we see it very commonly. Um, and this is a disease where patients are at varying levels deficient in von Willebrand's factor, which will affect their platelet, uh, platelet function. So they'll have a normal number of platelets, but they'll have similar signs to our thrombocytopenic patients because they, um, it's just a different issue with the platelet. Um, so they'll, again, mucosal surface bleeding or excessive bleeding during routine surgical procedures. As I said, their platelet count will be normal. Their other coagulation parameters such as PT and APTT will be normal. The one thing that will be abnormal is the buccal mucosal bleeding time. And really the buccal mucosal bleeding time is the way that we can effectively assess platelet function in practice. And that's when we make with a, a little guillotine device, a standardized cut into the mucous membrane of the gum uh, and measure how long it takes for the clot to form. Um, and so that's a, a useful test um, uh, for patients where you think platelet function might be the issue. In order to diagnose von Willebrand's disease, we usually go on and, and measure von Willebrand's factor antigen. Uh, so that's that's typically how we will will do that. And there are some DNA or genetic testing for predisposed breeds, and obviously breeds like the Doberman would be very commonly associated with um, with uh, von Willebrand's uh, disease. A real whiz through kind of uh, thrombocytopenia and, and platelets uh, generally. But I think um, um, what we're going to sort of go on to talk about disorders of secondary coagulation, but it, it doesn't have to be complicated, this. Ultimately, if you've got a patient that presents with bleeding, petechiation, ecchymosis, excessive bleeding after surgery or trauma, mucosal bleeding, nasal bleeding, you want to be assessing platelet number, number one, um, with your machine and with your, your microscope. Uh, that is ultimately going to make a huge amount of of, of impact on the, the decisions you're you're making after that, because if platelet number is through the floor, then you've almost got your answer very quickly. Other ways of of measuring coagulation, as we said, from a practical point of view, is really PT and APTT, which we'll come on uh, to come on to 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 talk about. But but if you've got that baseline of information where you've got your platelet uh, number particularly in your uh, PT and APTC to help with secondary coagulation you've you're armed then with so much information actually and then that will take you down your different uh, sort of differential lists and different routes and the only other kind of adjunctive part of that is that we can obviously see disorders as we said where platelet number is normal but their function is not but actually 
and the buccomucosal bleeding time would be helpful. But actually that's going to be something you come across less, less commonly. So um, next time we'll go on to talk a little bit about uh, secondary hemostasis and some of the, the challenges with that, as well as uh, particularly with um, some of the, the treatment challenges. But uh, hopefully that's uh, rounded off a little bit some of the main points when it comes to the investi investigation of primary uh, coagulation disorders. Massive thank you again to Kat for chatting today and to the whole of the VetLed team for their kindness and support. For more information about what VetLed do, please head over to our show notes uh, where we've popped some information, particularly about the HALT campaign that we talked about uh, in the podcast today. For more information about VTX and what we do, then head over to our website, which is www.vtx-cpd.com. Big thank you to you all always for your love and support and for tuning in we really really uh, appreciate that hugely do give us a, a like follow and share um over on social media too and we'll see you next week mm -hmm.